I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to another high resolution. I am Seamus Byrne. This week, I'm chatting to Dylan Miklashek from Gameloft in Brisbane. He's the studio manager and has been with the company since it founded its Australian operation. This is a longer than uh, longer than usual chat, but Dylan was super insightful and really candid about both the studio and the wider industry. So it was a chat I was happy to just keep digging deeper and deeper into. Dylan has a really interesting background that led him to arrive where he is today, and he has strong opinions about the need for government schemes like tax incentives as part of building a thriving and globally competitive ecosystem. While he's not from Australia originally, and perhaps because he's not, he's got some great thoughts on why this is such a great country to be a game developer in. But he also looks at the difficulties of finding the right staff when running a development studio in Brisbane, and we explore what's needed to help train developers to get more of them to the right tier of experience and to spread the industry around the country, and not just always talk about how great things are down in Melbourne. It's an honest mix of the difficulties and the opportunities in the scene today, and I hope you get a lot out of the discussion. We dive in as Dylan explains where his journey in Gameloft began. So I've been making games since uh, 1996, so quite a while now. I got into it uh, at EA Canada in Vancouver. That's kind of where I grew up. I was originally born in the States, but when I was about 12, uh, my family moved up to Canada. Um, so I consider myself Canadian, um, just in case people ask when they hear my <laughs> accent. Um, so... Yeah, I got this great opportunity uh, and jumped on board. Uh, it was a bit scary back then. So when you say, uh, you know, it, it's a real, it's a real opportunity, a real career. Um, it certainly is in North America and in Europe. Uh, but back in those days, in '96, uh, my mother wasn't really pleased with my <laughs> decision when I told her, "Oh yeah, I'm going to go work for this video game company." She's like, "That doesn't sound like a real career." <laughs> Um, but, uh, it was amazing. It was the most, uh, amazing decision I ever made up to that point. You know, I was a programmer and I did, you know, jobs in the, uh, industrial, uh, computer industry, which was pretty cool. But once I got to, you know, EA and we were making video games, um, I don't know. It was just like, wow, this, I love what I do. This isn't the job. This is amazing. Um, 
the uh, the work was pretty brutal. <laughs> so a bit of that wore off quickly when you find out uh, how difficult they are to make and the amount of pressure that people were under and the hours were pretty crazy back then. Um, but I got the opportunity to work on FIFA for six and a half years. And then I worked on a baseball game for another year. Um, that was great. And I moved into uh, moved to THQ. And if you remember, they used to have a studio here in Brisbane. Uh, yeah. And one of their biggest games was the WWE franchise. So I had the opportunity to manage that. And that was an amazing experience. Spent a lot of time in Japan because uh, their main developers for those games were in Japan. So very cool experience. Um, and then uh, sort of going back, when I'm still at EA, I met my wife up at Whistler, who's, lo and behold, Australian. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we decided to move down to California to take the WWE opportunity. Uh, and then from then, uh, there I met people at Pandemic. I don't remember them. Yeah. And uh, they said, hey, look, we want to expand our studio in Brisbane, Australia. And I said, well, that works great because my wife wants to move back there. She was eight months pregnant and wanted to be near her family. So, yeah, we, uh, I kind of figured while I was uh, meeting up with an Australian that eventually I would end up in Australia, which was fine with me because I had visited here before. It was awesome. So, yeah, then we started up a uh, Team Bravo, as it became known as, and thought we were going to be working on a new game. And then the Dark Knight opportunity came along because Pandemic and EA are working so closely together. Uh, that uh, license was they're looking for a team to make the next um, Dark Knight or, you know, Batman based in the Chris Nolan universe. Uh, and away we went. So it just blew up before we knew it. We we're 120 people and making this incredible open world um, action game. Uh, and yeah, that was an amazing experience. Uh, probably one of the highlights of my career, but then it sort of became the low light as uh, EA and uh, Warner Brothers got into a bit of a scuffle. And the Dark Knight game was sort of an innocent bystander victim yeah. um and then that quickly you know at the same time that, well, that happened and then right after that almost uh, we had the global financial crisis and all the big studios uh big publishers sort of go whoa okay we're going to retract to you know the low risk uh which would be existing uh all their existing ips and franchises and uh, the the exchange rate wasn't doing as well as it had um, and then, you know, other countries just became, um, you know, more competitive. Uh, that's about the time. I think I was actually before that when the whole uh, tax incentives thing started in Montreal. Uh, and it was Ubisoft that sort of kicked that off. Uh, and then be they became, you know, 30% cheaper uh, or their operating costs were, you know, nearly 30 to 40% cheaper. Uh, that's hard to compete with. And then you also had the growing Eastern Europe and uh, yeah. Asia, uh, and they were you know, operating at a third, if not a quarter of the cost. Didn't quite have the same level of experience, maybe, um, but it all sort of came to you know, a head yeah. in, in mid-2000s, uh, sorry, late 2000s, 2008, 2009. Mm. So I actually got out of video games for a bit. 
renovated a house. Um, and then when that proved to be quite a difficult, uh, it was good. I enjoyed it, but it's, uh, it's hard just to jump into a different industry like that. <laughs> yeah. So I ended up uh, getting whatever job I could, which was into uh, the gaming industry, which is, you know, gambling, online gambling, a company called Icon. Uh, that's done quite well here in Australia, um, but it's not the same. You know, it's nowhere near the same. I used to tell myself, it was like, well, you know, instead of, uh, you know, it's sort of, because um, with, with the video games, you know, the impact it has on children, um, it can sometimes be uh, not great. Uh, so I said, well, you know, now I'm affecting adults. So, you know, no, but it's, it just, it's not the same. It's, you know, people aren't, a lot of people play those kind of games for, uh, you know, just enjoyment, pass the time, that sort of thing. Uh, but there is, you know, the addiction side of it. It's not great. And it's, you know, they're not fun. It's not fun like a video game. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's let's a, not get ourselves. Always find that, yeah, the debate over, you know, sort of video games versus the sort of gambling things. It's almost like, well, is it too fun? Whereas, yeah, the other side mm. of it is almost like, well, yeah, where's the balance in the money equation? <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot. Of, I think with some of the free-to-play games, they've actually captured a lot of that. Yeah. You know, they, that whole psychology part of that, they've tapped into it, and it appears to be a video game. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's a lot like a slot game. Yeah. You know, they use the same maths and the same approach. So, um, and the loot boxes... I mean, yep. that's essentially exactly what those are. So it's understandable that people, have, I think it's great that people have stood up and said, well, hang on, that's too close. And now you're, it's not the same. It's got to be treated. If you want to do that, then it's got to be treated like a slot game, yeah. you know, like a pure gambling game. It's totally fair. Yeah. I recently, uh, so then, I recently told my son actually to, um, uh, he was chasing some weapon in a, in a free-to-play game. And he was telling me how he just had to get this many levels to kind of get there. And I'm like, so are the levels slowing down each time you go up a level or are they like linear levels? And then, you know, so roughly think about the next five levels, you know, how how long does it take you to get through those? Then multiply that out. Then try to like do your own little maths there on will you ever actually get that weapon that you're eyeing off? Or is it just trying to get you to throw $50 into a machine? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I had a similar experience with my son in Fortnite in the early days. And, uh, you know, he spent his own money that he had to earn. And he sort of just got consumed in it. His friends were in it. And there's just this frenzy. And, you know, you buy your battle pass and you get all this stuff. And, and I said, okay, so you do realize that you've spent $70 in the past uh, two months chasing things that have nothing to do with actually playing the actual game. And he was just like, uh, and he's a smart kid, but they just the way it grabs you. And he just went, oh, I never added it up. <laughs> you know, I mean, and then he was just so mad at himself after that that he Aww. got sucked in. <laughs> you know, he's yeah. just like, for days and. And he didn't play much longer after that because I think he was, you know, just turned off by the fact that he'd been he'd been manipulated. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and and wasn't uh, wasn't happy about it. But I think he also got bored of it. But um, <laughs> take nothing from Fortnite; it is a cultural phenomena and good yeah. for them. Um. So yeah. So then after that, I just I was sort of done with this gaming thing, and at the same time, I was starting to look out. Other, outside of that, uh, Gameloft was looking for a studio manager 
for a new studio here in Brisbane. So I was like, wow, okay, I'll jump all over that. Uh, and um, luckily, I won the job and away we went. And that was uh, October 2014, uh, which was a really interesting beginning to that experience was they, through their studio over in Auckland, they had, because they had some people from Brisbane there, and they sent out the feelers and started hiring people. And basically, I walked in day one, and we had 15 people, including myself, and I knew some of them, uh, just from previous you know, work and experience. And it was like, okay, so we've got some tables here, some desks we've set up. Uh, we've got some computers here, um, 15 of them to be exact, and there's 15 of you. Um, go. Start making a game. <laughs> I was like, what What do we, okay. I mean, we started with a few donuts and some coffee, but by noon, we were all in there. Okay, trying to get hooked up, you know. Okay, what's in, we're engine, what are we using here? And what tools are you've got that? Okay, so can we compile the existing engine? We, okay, well, it was just go. <laughs> it was amazing. It was the weirdest. Because usually, you know, you come onto a team that's already in full production and you're just, in, you know, you're being added to yeah. it. Or, you know, if you're an indie game, you know, you're one or two people and you start working together, trying that, trying that. It's a bit of a slow build or whatever. But this was, you know, like nothing I'd ever experienced. 15 people, go. <laughs> start learning it and start thinking about what we're going to design. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. It was I mean, really who unique. takes the lead in that conversation? Because, you know, like you're right. If everybody's sort of sitting there looking at each other, I mean, is it just someone throws something on the table or... Uh, does someone sort of, well, I guess, you know, did you start as the sort of studio manager in like when you arrived there? Is that sort of been your roles for through that time? Well, I started as the production director. So I was the most senior person there. Uh, they just at the time um, hadn't handed out studio manager yet. Um, so at Gameloft, you know, that's, they have these studios all over the world. And often those studio managers come from headquarters. Right. So they're sort of, you know, um, you know, grow up through Gameloft and then get sent out. So, um, you know, that was, it was, they didn't have somebody to do that yeah. with the studio. So they brought me as there and then I eventually, you know, earned their trust. Uh, and then they, you know, gave me that position, but I was still the senior guy. Um, so I, you know, I'm a very collaborative kind of guy. So I'm not the guy that comes in here and goes, okay, here you go. This is what you're going to do. This is what you're going to do. I go, okay, well, this is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess, you know, we need to start learning, uh, you know, what the tools are. And, you know, one of the guys goes, yeah, I've already compiled this such and thing. And so we're looking into that. I go, okay, great, okay. You know, it's uh, some of the people that were there, um, you know, they're experienced and uh, just dove right in, which was really cool. Like the, the beginning of that. And it's a sort of a culture that we've always had in the studio pretty fearless and just jumping in and uh, start doing something, you know, start doing it. And then we'll start answering some questions. And then maybe when we get far enough, we'll say, okay, so should we continue doing what we're doing now? Or should we sort of, should we change it based on all the new information and the questions that have been answered so far? And, you know, often you do correct your path or change it a bit. But sometimes you just got to roll your sleeves up, jump in, and and that's that's kind of what we did. So it was, it was an exciting time. Plus, we didn't have our our, our office space yet. Um, they were they had to renovate it, 
So that was the thing that it was, you know, sort of dumped onto me. It was, okay, you need to hire more people. Uh, you need to get this renovation, like this fit out sorted, because all it was was like an empty warehouse <laughs> in uh, Tenerife. And uh, yeah, go. Start to get to know your people. Start building a game. And I didn't even have a producer or anybody at that time. So I was sort of you know juggling all these things. But it was a very exciting time. Uh, great bunch of people. And um, yeah, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, awesome. Um, so yeah, what projects i guess are driven out of australia there you know what uh yeah that people people would know from sort of looking the uh, looking up the game loft games so game loft does a lot of different types of games mm. uh what we've sort of focused on are action uh adventure games so the first one we did was an action tycoon game uh that was the idea from headquarters at the time was about uh the walking dead popularity and they're like let's make a game you know like that um, so it was exactly that it was zombies and tycoon action adventure with, um, uh, you know, the sort of the survival element of it, you know, uh, build your own camp and continue to build it up to make it stronger, invade other camps for yep. resources, uh, and, you know, try to survive, you know, the zombies. In some cases you were just going into camps that had, were overrun by zombies or an area that was overrun by zombies. Other ones were, you know, the human PVP camps and things like that. So it was pretty cool. We were, you know, it it was a tycoon game, which, you know, with things like Clash of Clans and um, Boom Beach and things like that, um, you know, that already been very successful. Um, but we had a bit of a different spin because you were three people trying to survive and they would work together and had different skills and abilities and stuff. Um, and for that being our first game out of that studio, and everybody there was, well, I shouldn't say everybody, but just about everyone was from console or PC backgrounds. They weren't mobile. You know, and it is a very different beast. Um, and it was our first, you know, free-to-play game for the most part, uh, which is an even more different beast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so it was... Uh, yeah, it was really interesting. I think we did a, a we did a great job given all those variables, um, and we were still struggling to try and you know fill the whole team. I mean, the whole team, it, the the biggest trouble, uh, like I mentioned before, is you know finding uh, finding people. You know, in Australia, it's really difficult to do, and you know, it's even more difficult in Queensland. Uh, so. It's uh, it's one of those things we struggled with. Uh, and as soon as we started to get near, okay, we've almost got everybody in place. Then, you know, you have a few you have a bit of turnover. Um, Australians love to travel. So you always get, hey, you know, geez, this has been great, but I got to go see the world. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. I know that's what, what Aussies do and what makes them so interesting. And uh, it makes them... Uh, know a lot more about the world than say uh, a typical American <laughs> because they go out there and see it. They're interested in the world. So it's, uh, and we got a lot of people from, you know, outside as well, um, immigrating people in and that some were permanent, some were, you know, temporary, um, which is another side topic, but that's changed a lot in the last three years. They revamped the whole immigration program. Yeah. So that's, it's more than three times as expensive as it used to be. 
fortunately, we've got we're on like a fast track kind of program. So we've proved to them that we're, you know, the type of people that we're um, immigrating are, you know, what they're looking for. It's you know good for their objectives and all this kind of thing. And um, but that doesn't change the cost. Yeah. So it's crazy. It's yeah. well over ten thousand dollars now, and then it's an annual thing too. So you have to keep paying. And this is above and beyond what obviously you know, paying a salary yeah. and super and all that. So yeah, yeah it's it's uh, makes it a lot more difficult. Um, plus, you know, you invest all that money, and then what if it doesn't work out? Because you're yeah. doing you know a lot of the interviewing remotely. Uh, I mean, I had even back in pandemic, people came over. They were awesome. Brought their families. And then their partner were like, I can't do it. I miss my family. Uh, I, I want to be near mom. You know, our kids are young. Yep. It's, I just didn't, you know, I didn't expect this or, you know, things happen. They change. Um, and, and then they go, I got I to go home. I got to go back. Okay. Yeah. So that makes it a bit uh, even a higher risk when you got to spend all that money. Yeah. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So what's the hard part then about sort of, you know, really finding the right kind of talent here? Because certainly, you know, there's lots of the game colleges and all this sort of stuff. Like, is it that there's, you know, it's like there's almost there's too much untested people with a few skills, but not really anything to show for it yet. Like, what is that real hard part about finding the right kinds of people that, you know, are going to be able to walk into a studio and give you what you need? Yeah. Well, some of that is, you know, they just, they need experience, Yeah. you know, and I'd love to be able to hire um, a whole slew of young people um, that are excited, they're pumped up, you know, they've got that enthusiasm, uh, they're smart, and they're ready to take on the world. The trouble is that no matter how great they are, they still don't have the experience of yeah. working with other teams uh, they don't under, there's a bunch of things they have to learn and we all went through it, yeah. you know? And I remember coming out of university going, I'm ready to go hire me. And they're like, ah, okay. You don't have any experience. Yeah. Well, how am I going to get experience if you don't hire me? Yep. Agreed. But yeah. <laughs> I can't really afford you right now. I need somebody who can actually be fully productive right now. Yeah. And, and that's the conundrum. You know, if I could, uh, I would hire those people. But, you know, and lots of them, I mean, we still do, but not at the rate that I'd like to, because you've got to have a staff available to train them. Uh, yeah. You've got to have the budget uh, available to look long term and say, look, we're building this for the future. It costs us a little bit now, but 
we're investing in the future. Um, I, you know, that's that's the smart way to do it. But the trouble is, uh, everybody else is so short-sighted. You know, it's kind of like um, it's kind of like politics. You know, they're worried about being reelected, so they're not going to do well. You know, we're going to look after the environment because you know where it's going to be in twenty years from now. And they're like, well, that's not going to get me elected right now. Is getting you know jobs in coal mining is what's going to get me reelected. So they, you know, it's a conundrum. You can't, do you blame them? It's just kind of how the way we work as humans. And as businesses work and until, you know, you can find those businesses that are like, no, we've got investors or we've got, you know, deep pockets and we can commit to long-term. And if you do that, I guarantee a success, but just, just finding those companies that can do that, finding those investors, I guess maybe you look at Magic Leap. They, yeah, <laughs> they. I got to learn something from them because the way that they convinced a lot of people to invest a ridiculous amount of money. Um, but that's what you need to do if you're going to be changing the world the way they are. Um, so that's sort of the trick, and that's I guess where you need governments to to help. I mean, aren't they the? They're they're one of those entities that say nope, long term. You know, you got to look long term. Uh, and obviously, it's it's based on people being elected, but they're also so, supposed to see past that and go long term, long term. You look at things like super, you know, everybody would love to have that 10 percent back in their own pocket. But the government's forcing you to look long term. Yeah. So we need something like that um, here. And that's where those tax incentives uh, make a big difference. They're making it. Um, I mean, it's they lose money up front, but they get it back when you have all these people working in this studio, not only paying taxes, but spending money in the local economy. Yeah, it's huge. And so it's a to me, it's just a no brainer. I don't understand why there's even hesitation, particularly since so many other countries and provinces and states have done it. Um and while they're doing it, it, it just looks that much cheaper. I mean, we line up, you know, cost of living. Uh, Australia is expensive uh, in general, which is a good thing because we're looking out for everybody and not just, um, you know, the sort of a, not the same type of capitalistic approach that, say, the United States would have. It's more like Canada, pay higher taxes, but, you know, we're, we're all a little bit more on a level ground and look after people. Um, and, you know, I, I just think that when we do that, it raises our cost of living. And because we don't have these incentives, we're looking more expensive than ever. Yeah. You know, and then you match that with Asia and Eastern Europe, um, who are getting, you know, a lot more experience now than they were five years ago. Uh, they're very capable. And they're, again, a third of the cost. Um, so that it's. Yeah, it really makes it difficult for Australia. Mm. And um, those tax incentives have they've been proven to work. They've been going in Montreal for, oh, geez, I'm thinking maybe 10 years. Yeah. You know, at least 10 years, maybe 15. And look what it's done for Ubisoft. And now you look at how many studios. I mean, everybody is in Montreal now. Yeah. And I tell you, the winters there are brutal. <laughs> 
they are brutal. I mean, you always talk to people in the winter and they're like, I got to get out of here. I'm moving. <laughs> I can't take it anymore. I'm leaving. That's it. You know, I don't care how good my job is. I can't take these winters. And, but then they, you know, the spring comes and they're like, yeah. <laughs> I was there in January 2019 for uh, oh. the uh, Rainbow Six Siege uh, big event up there in Montreal because, of course, it's a Ubisoft game. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was amazing just to see like three feet of snow piled up on the side of the road and just the trucks always just driving around pushing it out of the way yeah because that's just the routine (laughs) that's the routine and it's you know windy and cold you go outside it won't last more than a few minutes yeah so it's uh it's a tough i mean it's a beautiful city but that does make it very difficult for people but they um you know they've got such great studios there they've got such a great culture such a great community Mm. uh and you know, once they got to a point, they got to a tipping point when they had, you know, probably three or four different big developers there and they move around. The people, you know, the resources move around. They're like, oh, you know, been great at Ubi, but I got to try something different. I want to see, I want to work on different games. Um, I want to work doing something differently or for whatever reason, they've got other options, but they don't leave Montreal. They stay there. You know, and they go around. Yeah, and yeah. lots of people at EA, I've got lots of friends um, that, you know, went, uh, I'm going to go try something else. You know, EA's gotten really big. It's a big machine. You know, I've learned a lot here. I need to go check check something else out. So they go do it. And I swear, like 30%, if not 50% of those people come back. Yeah. You know, they come back because EA changed, you know, because EA, you know, had some issues uh, and they got through those or something changed or they changed or something, but they stay, you know, in Vancouver or they stay in Montreal. Yeah. They always come back to it or, you know, they leave there and they come back. So they've got this constant flow, ebb and flow of resources. Um, And so going back to this, you know, education thing, if we could get more of those experienced people in there, um, here in Australia, keep them here. They don't take off and leave forever. Yeah. Um, they stay here and then they can help mentor and educate the younger ones. Um, yeah. and, and that's a big piece that we're missing. And we just, we're missing it because we don't have enough developers and publishers here that are investing in that. Yeah. You know, cause the, cause they look at it and they go, well, the government isn't. Yeah, investing in that everywhere else, it sees the value in it. This is the other scary thing is that the government doesn't see the value in video games or the video game industry, even though everything I read says that it's bigger than the film industry. Yeah. (laughs) So why don't we have similar because they've got tax incentives. Um, They're a little different than the but they're something. They're a lot more than what the video game industry has. Um, I think in a lot of ways, the film industry is a little um, a little more interesting to people because it has, you know, it's film. They relate to it. Everybody watches, you know, movies and TV shows. Uh, not everyone plays video games. Um, and it speaks to a wider audience. And guess what? It has movie stars in it. So they're cool. You want to meet them, don't you? Yeah. You know, do you really want to? I mean, is it? For, for video gamers, it's really exciting to meet the lead designer, you know, of, uh, you know, uh, Call of Duty or, you know, um, GTA or something like that. But for most people, it's not. Yeah. But if you want to, you know, meet Chris Hemingsworth or something, then it's like, whoa, you know, that's yeah. a big deal, right? Yeah. 
Um, it's like there's such a small number of, you know, name brand game makers out there, like compared to, you know, film and TV industry type stuff yeah. where you, ah, oh, like that's the good person who made that thing. It's like, well, yeah, there's such a small number of those in, in the game space, I guess. But, um, but you're right about sort of that whole idea of needing, like it could be used in some ways, like that that kind of arts industry model uh, for film and TV support could kind of be used at least as kind of a very similar related sort of concept to try to form the basis of better support mm. for the games industry given that there are is so much, you know, it's like it is a, an export industry. People are making things here and then they're selling yep. it all over the world. It, it kind of... It's really hard to fathom where that gap sits and why the decision can't get made. Yeah, I think it's, you know, the when I talk to other people that are in government um, or in related industries, and I say, well, why, why, why? I mean, it's so big other places. I mean, you look at Apple, you look at Amazon, these are the biggest companies in the world. So why aren't we tapping into something? Why don't we have something going on there? I mean, Apple's made so much money off of games, you know, yeah. just not just their, you know, hardware and stuff. Um, but they say it's old school. You know, they're old school. They look at the natural resources. There's a lot of people in government that don't understand it. Yeah. Um, you know, I've talked to, it seems like uh, the um, Labour Party has people in it that ha are a little bit more open or un they understand the the, pot, the potential of the video game industry um, a lot better. Um, but, you know, since they're not in power, then it doesn't get a lot of uh, attention. Um, so and I'm, I'm not a really, I'm not a politics guy, yeah. you know. Um, it's, uh, I'm more pragmatic, I guess. Or, But, mm. I, yeah, it's just, it's a real tricky situation. I don't know how to get people on board. It, it, you look in, in Canada, it was done on a provincial level. So it's not even a federal level. Yeah. Um, it's a provincial level. So I've tried to talk to people here within the Queensland government. But I mean, right now certainly isn't a very high topic, which is totally understandable. Got a couple other major things going on. <laughs> um, but And I thought we were picking up a little bit of, you know, attention. Um, but there's a lot of focus on indie and, you know, little bits of money. You know, like, okay, here, give people. But the problem is the scale is so small. Yeah. You know, and that's where you need a balance. You need a couple of the big publishers, big developers, and then a bunch of the little ones. Um, you can't just have one or the other. Yeah. And, and with the bigger ones, obviously, you know, those tax incentives, uh, depending on how you look at it, yeah, it's a big chunk of money. You know, if you've got 100 people in a studio or more, I mean, look at Ubisoft. They've got like over 3,000 or 4,000 people in their Montreal studio. And salaries are obviously the biggest cost. And if you look at that and you take 30 to 40% of that, I mean, it's millions upon millions of dollars. Um, so I think, you know, when they look at it like that, they're like, oh, God, well, we can't do that. That's a big number. But then you go, we just need somebody that can get in front of them and convince them. Yeah, but look, that you're spending that to get this. All these people that the 100 people are paying taxes and they're putting all the money that they earn back into the economy. Yeah. Um, so it's, ah, it's a no brainer. <laughs> yeah. 
And but I think we're not. We're just not there yet. It's like, you know, and, and you mentioned sort of, again, that whole kind of Montreal ecosystem in a sense, or, you know, in lots of other cities. I mean, you know, here it, it's always felt like the Victorian government has kind of done enough, at least, that kind of makes everybody think about Melbourne as that kind of hub because, you know, there's a there's enough of a group of companies down there that means people kind of feel that sense of community and they might move from one company to another company sometimes. They don't yep. necessarily feel like if I want to leave this company, I probably need to move overseas to stay in an industry I yep. like, you know. So um, I think it's a great point there. Like I don't, you know, is there, are there a few other sort of companies up there in, in Brisbane that are sort of you know, nearby or is it that feeling that, you know, it's like, well, you're either working for, you know, for Gameloft or there's not many other places to be working, you know, without moving somewhere else. Yeah, well, that's the that's the trouble. And there there are other companies um, and there is like Kixie and there is Halfbrick. Um, but, you know, they're, they're not in growth stages. They're not in a growth place. Yeah. You know, like Kixie, I think they've got a live game and they're continuing that game. Um, but they're... They're right down to, you know, as I understand it, it's scaled right down, you know, and half brick scaled right down as well. Yeah. Um, so they're not, they're not growing. They're not uh, taking a lot of risks. Uh, they're not investing a lot of money into risk. It's just sort of keeping up the pulse barely going. And you're right. You look at Melbourne, they've got EA and although it scaled back about a year ago, um, you know, it's still uh, a lot of people and it's a big, big machine there. And then Sledgehammer, they chose to open up their studio there. And that's that's one of the most positive uh, opportunities or examples of growth potential. Yeah. Um, but we need like five of those, <laughs> Yeah. you know, not just one of them. Yeah. It, it just can't go with Sledgehammer down in Melbourne. Uh, I think it has to be in multiple cities uh, and even... Yeah, but you have that in Melbourne. I can't get people to leave Melbourne to come up to Game Loft, for example, because they're like, eh, I've got other options here, you know, and I've made a life here in Melbourne. So I kind of want to stick around. Yeah. Okay. Can't argue with that. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, there's people in Brisbane that feel the same way, but they're running out of options. Yeah. You know, and even for Game Loft, unfortunately, like we tried to grow to a second team about two and a half, three years ago. And in the end, it failed because I could not get enough people. So then I had two, you know, two teams that didn't have enough people on both of them. And the projects took longer, you know, than they should have um, because of lack of experience and lack of bodies uh, and a lack of specific key roles. And, you know, the head office says, look, we want these games got to come out on an annual basis or close to it. So they're just taking too long. So if you can't get enough people for two teams, we're scaling you back to one. And that was really, that's a really frustrating situation to be in. Uh, It's it's sad because, you know, people lost their jobs, uh, which is always the worst experience of anybody in a leadership role. Um, But uh, because you just feel for them, it's, it's, you just, uh, yeah, there's no, nothing worse. (laughs) And having to uh, communicate that information. Yeah. Um, and I've been through it myself with pandemic. Uh, so it, it's, it's tough all around. Uh, but, you know, I can't really fault, you know, headquarters for wanting to do that. You know, they're like, look, uh, it's just, it's until you can get, you know, enough people 
to to pull that off successfully, then we just we can't do it. It's like, yep, I would do the same thing if I was in their position. Yeah. And, the, you know, some people say the exchange rate, um, you know, they'll say, well, you know, the right now the exchange rate is great. Yeah, it's good. It's good. But it's unpredictable. Yeah. And it's no guarantee. And what, ha- you know, no company is going to come in here and invest a ton of money. And then in six months from now, the costs go up 30% in an already expensive environment. So it's, um, it's sort of a bonus. You know what I mean? It can be a bonus sometimes. That's why pandemic yeah. initially set up here was, you know, back during the Olympics, uh, it was 50%. So they're like, hey, <laughs> that's a good deal. <laughs> yeah. That makes it uh, well worthwhile. But, you know, like I say, it's unpredictable. It's yeah. not, can't use that alone. I mean, and it you, also means you, that we're not in a good place as a country if our exchange rate is so low. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so why would you invest? You know? Yeah. Anyway, sorry. So, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, what are some of the, you know, the the good parts, I guess, about being part of a global org? You know, like, is there is there much kind of collaboration with overseas or are you quite an independent team? And what are those kind of ways in which, I guess, there's, there's back and forth with, uh, you know, with the higher ups? Yeah, it's um, it's a combination of the two. Uh, so we're really fortunate um, to be associated with or owned by a giant company. You know, there's pros and cons to everything. Yeah. But, uh, you know, they've got the money and they've got the long term. You know, they they sit there like uh, Vivendi is uh, the company that owns Gangloft. Um, and they've been around for, God, like 100 years or something, right? They used <laughs> to do... Uh, they used to be in charge of uh, utilities uh, and uh, the water system or something in Paris back in the day. So they go way back and they realize, like a lot of, you know, um, European countries and companies, they realize that this stuff, you know, takes time, you know, and it'll be here, you know, in a hundred years from now. So don't panic, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. So that's their, their approach. They're like, look, uh, these things take time. Uh, we need to invest in it. We want to see a plan. We want to see progress. But, you know, they're not just going to, you know, like that. Like you look at the stock exchange in the, the stock exchange in Europe, you know, they just don't have the kind of volatility that, say, NASDAQ or uh, Dow Jones does, which is, you know, again, pros and cons. You can't make, you know, a killing by you know, a skyrocketing stock. Uh, but you also don't have to worry about it, you know, going up and down like a roller coaster and closing a company down. Uh, I mean, EA probably lays people off every year uh, around uh, August, October, September, August, September, October, in order to, you know, if their revenues aren't, you know, where they wanted them to be, then they've got to get their costs down. Let's see, you know, that's the only other way to get the numbers to match. Otherwise, their stock will take a hit and there's all kinds of bad knock-on effects that occur from that. Uh, so we don't have that volatility. Um, and because game loss no longer public itself, you know, we're quite small in the grand scheme of things at Vivendi. Um, so it's good. They're being patient. Uh, they're listening. Um, you know, they're not experts in the video game industry. So they're listening to us. So that's great. Um, we our headquarters for GameLoft is in Paris, and we work very closely with them. So there's obviously uh, you know a high degree of autonomy, um, but 
you know, at the end of the day, they're our customer. Uh, and, and they're sort of managing, you know, the company as a whole. So, you know, we can't have every studio in the company making, you know, an uber casual game, you know, that, that wouldn't be smart. So they're sort of diversifying and making sure that, you know, on a grand scale, we're in a good balance. Um, and we try to work together as well to share, you know, ideas and thoughts. I'm actually quite well connected with all the other creation studio managers and we talk on a regular basis and have you know a mattermost channel where you know every other day someone's talking hey did you hear this do you know about that hey what are you guys doing about this like covid hey what are you guys doing or when do you think you might let people back in the office or when do you think you might be encouraging people to come back to the office you know there's constant chatter so that's that's enormous um and I know what's going on in other cities in the world, you know, like Bucharest and Montreal and Toronto uh, through their eyes. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's really good. I think sometimes collaboration can be a bit tricky because because they've got so many projects, you know, they're really time starved. You know, they just they have no time, so many things going on. Uh, and um, there's a big time difference. The time difference is really difficult. I have to take a lot of calls at 10, 11 o'clock at night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it just, it makes it difficult in the distance. So that whole face-to-face thing is so important. So Zoom and whatnot works great. But when you're having contentious, you know, debates or, you know, talking about any kind of stress involved, um, then, you know, it would be much better to be face-to-face. Yeah. Uh, especially when you're, you know, building a rapport. Um, but you know, the, the, it's 25 hours each way on a plane. So that's, and right now nobody's flying at all. So, um, you know, that adds to it. it. It also can be a good thing because, you know, we don't have somebody from headquarters planted in our studio. <laughs> that was EA's thing. That's actually when I first started working at EA, that was my job. <laughs> they'd send even though I was living in Vancouver and I worked for EA Canada and Burnaby they'd go okay well welcome to the team uh you're going to England in two days and I'm like oh yeah we want you to go have a look at our team there we got we got a contractor that's working on one of the FIFAs oh okay and let us know how it's going <laughs> so just, I hadn't even didn't even know anybody at EA yet. I was getting thrust into this studio <laughs> in Liverpool. Hey, hi, new guy. Go and stick your nose in and uh, see if you can learn everything that's happening. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you're like a spy. Then you've come here to stand over us. No, 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 man, not like that. But what are you working on? What's going on? When are you guys going to be ready? Hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not taking notes. Well, I am, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but they're mainly nice notes. Uh, don't <laughs> worry. I won't get you in too much trouble. Yeah, those those were interesting times. But that's – so we don't have that. Um, you know, so that's that's good. But like I say, there's pros and cons to everything. But it, it, at this time, it, the, the fact that they're investing and investing for a long period of time is huge. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um, these games are – especially mobile games – you just don't know whether they're going to be a commercial success or not. And you, so you really have to throw them out there, see how they go and, you know, do postmortem on it. Uh, but 
often they will not often, but it's not rare for them to fail and really have no explanation for it. You know, it's just what did people go for? You can do all the marketing tests beforehand. You can do all sorts of, you know, of uh, exercises to try to avoid that. But at the end of the day, it just sometimes doesn't work. I mean, film industry is similar, right? You know, yeah. they'll do tests beforehand and then change the film accordingly, put it out there, and it just just doesn't work. Yeah. You know, it's just not any good. So people don't jump on it. It doesn't catch on. Or, you know, you look at how many movies, uh, you know, they came out. And then like even Reservoir Dogs, when it first came out, for example, I don't think it did very well, but then it came, uh, you know, a cult classic, you know? So there's, there's things like that. Um, and you need someone to believe in the long term. Yeah. And Vivendi does that. So that's brilliant. Very yeah. lucky that way. <laughs> yeah. But it won't last forever. <laughs> so <laughs> that's where I'm like pleading with governments to, you know, try and, try and hear how important it is to invest, you know, now Mm. um, to, to start working on this, to put it in place. Um, You know, I'm talked to my headquarters a lot about it. Uh, They know all about it. They even, uh, Anna Palaszczuk was in um, Paris for, you know, some kind of trip uh, work related uh, and did a luncheon and our CFO went to the luncheon to meet with her and to talk to her and try to convince her about tax incentives and whatnot. Yeah. And, uh, but unfortunately, um, that was when the fires broke out in Queensland. <sighs> so she had to come home early. Uh, so we didn't get to meet her. So there's little things like that. It's just like, yeah, oh, darn it. Um, but, uh, you know, they are trying at a high level because that's how important it is. That's going to make the difference. They want to stay in Australia. They want to expand in Australia, but they they have their business. Yeah. So if they can do it cheaper in other cities that have lots of resources, well, then it would make sense for them to do that. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's a difficult situation, um, but somehow I need, I need, we need, the industry needs uh, the government to to do something, either federal or state. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, are there sort of, are there clear best practice kind of ways of doing that, like that you've seen or that Gameloft has seen? Or, you know, are there things that, you know, like part of me wonders sometimes, is it almost that idea of, you know, like you say, it's kind of, it's too hard to just hire completely fresh people, but are there ways that, you know, that the, when they often say, oh, like, we'll help support training budgets, that it's almost like, well, as you've said as well, that sometimes you can't just give all the time of your senior staff members to looking after junior staff members, but maybe there's ways of kind of going, oh, support us having more key staff where their time is dedicated to training people. Like, Are there kind of any you know, thoughts or is it just that idea of going just some good, clean tax percentages and things like that are the easiest way to do it? Well, I mean, it's hard for me to say because I don't know how it affects them and how they can yeah. put it in place. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm sure there's massive complexities on their side. The amount of money they're juggling and where they distribute it is, yeah. is mind-boggling. Um, I know from our side, uh, absolutely, the only way it's going to work is tax incentives. Everybody else is doing it. That's why they're doing it. So <laughs> why try and reinvent something that's working 
elsewhere. And it's also how companies are weighing it up. You know, so if we sit here and go, okay, so Montreal, Toronto, every other studio, country, state, province, they do tax incentives and it's based on this. Okay, very clear, very simple. All right, and who else? Australia, they have a completely different system. Oh, how does that work? Huh? Well, I don't really have time to learn that. Yeah. What? It's got what? High in its what? Oh, I don't understand. <laughs> Never mind. Too hard. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. We should just say, look, we've got exactly what Montreal has. Oh, okay. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Montreal right now is kind of flooded. You know, they're, they're, they're saturated. They've got <laughs> yeah. so many studios there that they've gone to the other side where it's a real fight for resources. Um, so there's opportunity. You know, there's opportunity. They are looking for places. They're looking for cities. But until we have those tax incentives that are, you know, very similar or identical to what other places are doing, um, we're stuck. Um, in terms of, you know, the interesting thing with all the programs, like, uh, you know, like you said, there are programs where, like, look, hire young people that are right out of school and will help financially. You know, so you have a hire young people program. The trouble is that that's, you know, so it helps hire that young person, perhaps, but the cost is actually much higher than that. Because like you say, you're, you've got to steal time from seniors and that costs money and they're on other projects. That's the biggest issue. Yeah. You know, they're time starved as well. They're super busy trying to get a game out the door um, and can't really be pulled over there easily. So I actually need to have a very strong leadership configuration and need to have a couple of senior people extra in order to be adding three or four young people. Yeah. And unfortunately it's just kind of how it works. So that's a lot more expensive than what the three or four young people um, cost. And not everybody who's good at being, you know, a senior team member is a good mentor inherently. (laughs) You're absolutely right about that. And that's no fault of theirs. That's just yeah. not their thing. And I know at EA, we used to say, well, you're the best programmer, so now you're going to be a lead. And it would be a disaster because they're like, okay, maybe I'm a good programmer, but I'm not a good people person. <laughs> yeah. And I don't really want to do it. It's not my thing. I, yeah. So now I'm a bad programmer. I'm a bad lead. And we'd lose the person. Uh, so, yeah, you, you can't force that on people. Some are very good at it. Some are not. Um, and they're they're hard to find. It's very hard to find someone who's you know incredibly talented from a technical perspective and at their trade, and then you know amazing at mentoring people. And because they're very different parts uh, of the brain, and to get really good at being a programmer, it's because they have thrown themselves into it, into the abyss. And that is a weird world. It's kind of like the Matrix. <laughs> you just <laughs> It looks totally different than the real world. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So it's um, yeah, it's a it's a conundrum, uh, and and really, I just I, and maybe it's because uh, you know I'm just focused on it, but I just roll it back. I go do the tax incentives, and it fix all the pro- it fixes all the problems. You know, it allows us to hire more people, whatever people we need to set up that kind of structure. Um, you know, what I'd love to get in place, something that we had at EA was the, the um, co-op program, engineering co-op program with a school called Waterloo, which is back east. And some really smart kids come out of there and they would go on this program 
where they would do some period of time school, like four to six months school, and then four to six months working. And they would start it after their second year. So it would make their overall graduation from university longer, but they had been working for half of it and like doing a real jobs. Like, uh, you know, we were very careful about who we selected. So it had to be kids that showed a lot of initiative. We're already doing projects on their own and creating portfolios, which is a really important thing to people that are out there uh, looking for jobs, um, you know, to make yourself heard and seen and increase your value, do your own work, write your own rendering engine, do your own art, do your own animations, create as big a portfolio as you possibly can. Uh, to First of all, you're learning. And secondly, you're demonstrating your keenness, you know, and that, and that you have a passion for what you're doing. Yeah. You know, a lot of the best programmers, you go, why are you such a good programmer? Because I go home after work and I program. I don't work. I don't do this programming. I have my own projects yeah. because they're just, that's what they love to do. And so they're just incredibly good at it. Um, it's like an athlete. You know, uh, these guys at the top are the best football players in the world. Uh, they're not good because, you know, someone stood behind them and said, you got to do this. And they're not doing it just because of the money. They're doing it because they absolutely love the sport. And ever since they were three years old, they've been kicking a ball in their backyard for eight hours a day. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but if we can, you know, if we can get, I don't know where I was going with that. I was talking yeah, no, that's off a- when I was talking about the kids and, and their portfolios and work. Oh, yeah, coming back to that. Yeah. We would find kids that were doing that in addition to going to school, to university. They would apply at EA for the co-op program. And we would hire, I think we hired about three uh, a term or something like that or every six months. And uh, most of them would end up working for EA. So it was this fantastic win-win. The kids got experience, great experience, working on teams, doing real stuff. Uh, and uh, we would get these very enthusiastic kids. They're, you know, it was very inexpensive. Uh, and we would get to see what they were like. So we knew these were top kids, got to see what they were like. And went, that's a perfect fit. Or we even got to mold them a bit. Uh, to to fit sort of our culture and, you know, sort of, I guess, not really, it was more fitting the collaboration. You know, often when they're younger like that, they haven't really done a lot of collaborating. So that's sort of a weird thing for them. And it's like, but if you throw them in there and we work with them and mentor that collaboration, um, it it works out really well. We hire them on full-time. Um, you're not allowed to steal them away from school, though. Yeah, yeah. So, they got to finish. So if they didn't graduate, <laughs> you were in a heap of trouble, and you'd get nasty letters from the university. <laughs> and the uh, the the uh, kids uh, applying would dry up. So <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so that was a great program that I'd love to see here. Mm. Worked out really well. But Sounds awesome. Again. I've got to have a few more people in leadership roles that can spare the time to help teach them. Yeah. So, So, I mean, what do you feel like, you know, um, you know, clearly there's problems. Are there strengths at the local industry or, you know, or is it partly just that we're an attractive place for, 
you know, for talent to want to live or even for people who are from here that ideally they'd all get to stay here and work in the industry oh. if it's what they want to do? Oh, well, Australia is an amazing place to start up uh, a studio to move development to, because people are happy. Do you know what I mean? This is, this is a wonderful place to live. It's safe. Um, it's progressive. Uh, and I think, you know, they, they work to live. And I know if you say that in the United States, they'd be like, what? Oh, what? Now you're just giving people an excuse to be lazy or something like that. It's like, no, man, you got to have a balance. You know, you got to work to live. You can't, you can't, uh, live to work. You know, that's just a slippery slope. Um, people, they're not doing it for the right reasons. The same thing I was talking about with the football player. You got to love it. If you don't love it, eventually wears off. And even a mortgage hanging over your head isn't going to, you know, drive you to do a great job at work. <laughs> yeah. You got to love what you're doing. Uh, and part of that is a, a good balance of perspectives in work life, personal life and your, your work life. And that's what we try to do uh, at Game Off Brisbane is a, a really important balance. So we give a lot of flexibility to people uh, in terms of, oh, you need a day off, you need time, oh, for the next little while, you need to come in late because your kids, this or that, or there's, you know, maybe someone's not, someone's ill at home or there's a situation, no problem, bang, go for it. We really, it's about that person being in a good headspace, right? Yeah. And that's not to try to manipulate them to get the most out of them. No, that's to say, look, if they are not in a good headspace, then everyone loses. They're losing. We're losing as a company, as a team. It's no good for anybody. And in Australia, I think that you have uh, a much higher uh, level of people in a good headspace than you do a lot of other places. You know, they're not living in fear. Um, they don't have to worry about medical. They don't have to worry about guns, a crime. Um, they can feel, you know, I mean, obviously we can always do a better job, but, you know, we look after each other. You know, just the state of our taxes and themselves look after each other. Uh, we don't have the high, high and the low, low that, you know, especially a place like United States does. Um, so I just think, uh, you know, on average, people are on a much better headspace consistently uh, than, than a lot of other countries. Uh, so that's what Australia has to offer. And that means that you've got happier people at work and you're going to make better products. You know, there's a tremendous amount of creativity that comes out of our studio. And that's because people are, you know, they're, they're passionate, but they're relaxed. You know, they're keen. Uh, but they also don't have stresses outside of work that are bringing them down, typically. Uh, and if there are, we, we address them and we try to do whatever we can to help address. And I, and I think Australia is pretty good about that across the board. You know, life's too short. You know, you got to enjoy it's a balance. So, yeah, I'm glad you asked that question because sometimes... I don't think that that gets communicated enough. That's what Australia has. This is a freaking awesome place to live. <laughs> and some people think they get a little bit, uh, you know, I think they worry a bit that we're all out surfing all the time or something. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's not like that. People work hard here. They just probably don't work as hard as maybe 
you know, I don't know if I'll get in trouble for saying this, but do they work as hard as people in China or United States? Uh, I think they have a better balance. And I think that better balance is, is leads to uh, more creativity, more innovation, a uh, higher level of productivity and happiness. And that's the key to me is, we, you know, we should all be as happy as possible and we'll, we'll do great things. Uh, I mean, I almost feel like sometimes that we, you know, we have that a, a clearer sense that if we're working together in, in a creative industry or like even, you know, from my perspective in editorial industries, that often we kind of know we all kind of love the same stuff as well. And so we sort of get along better and are really kind of set up like positive, friendly environments in a way that when I've actually sometimes seen with sort of international colleagues in similar industries that you sometimes find people are they're more tense about like, when do I climb the ladder next and step over that person mm. and and like and so they're a lot less collegiate in a sense compared to that idea of all right we're a small team and we all love what we do and therefore let's go and have a beer after work or let's kind of hang out and let's become friends because we all love the same stuff well absolutely and that just comes down to the core of say united states's culture and canada gets a little bit of it but but not you know nowhere near to the degree just because the states is so close they kind of have to <laughs> in sometimes but yeah United States it's all about a rat race you know it's all about you know life is about achieving you know a certain career status or financial status I mean that's bigger than anything else in the United States and all about that capitalism man and that's why I don't live there you know and. Um, uh, sometimes I think, oh, am I, I going to have to move back there at some point because of work? Uh, ooh, I guess maybe, but I sure don't want to, you know, because it's it's and there's lots of wonderful Americans. You know, there's you know great people, uh, great people there. I've got friends there. I've got family there. Um, it's just sort of an overall culture that gets beaten into. And it starts with the companies. The companies are all about, well, you know, you get bonuses on performance and delivering. And they really lay it to you. It's a, you know, and they've done some great things because of that. I mean, you look at Steve Jobs, <laughs> the stories you hear about that guy. Um, but, you know, he created some incredible things, you know, and now it's the, one of the biggest companies. And depending on the stock price on the day, it's the biggest company in the world. So was he right or wrong? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I still think, uh, you know, he could have done it with a little less of the, you know, heavy hitting. Um, but I guess that's, that's sort of my, that's just my opinion. But I agree, you know, I like to think of it this way. If you look at um, in sports, how competitive they are, you know, and, and often back in the day, you would look at, so I, I used to, I'm big into BMX. So I grew up racing BMX and stuff like that. You know, you weren't really friends with your buddies, you know, that you were racing against, you know, they were your competitors. And so, you know, you'd talk to him and all that. But at the same time, you know, you know, someone would go, what gearing are you running? None of your business. <laughs> like, yeah. what? Come on, man. Are you kidding me? But no, that's the way it was. Like, people would, like, because your gearing is written on your sprockets. And they would file it off. So they didn't know what gear you were running. Because <laughs> BMX is like a single gear. Like, what, what are people doing here? This is crazy. And then you look at today's um, uh, extreme sports. And it's such a different culture. You know, they're like, they want everybody to win. 
whether it's them or it's like, we just want to do great things. I want to see you do everything you want to do and every triple backflip and land it. And if that means you beat me, so be it. I am as happy for you for winning and, and pulling off your dream run that, you know, I would have been for me. Yeah. And that real camaraderie and support. And I think, look at, I think it works better because look at the things that they're doing. It's insane. Like the, the, some of the, you know, quadruple backflips and triple backflips on a motorcycle. I mean, God, they're getting, a lot of them are killing themselves, but (laughs) you know, they're doing it because of an inner drive and their support. Yeah. And you're right. It's like, I want to beat you at your best, not, I want to beat you because I pulled one over you. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I just want to, you know, I'm happy to win, but I want every one of us to have the, you know, the run that we wanted. Yeah. You know, we want, I want everyone else to succeed up here. And then if I win after that, great. But I just, they get all, it's it's similar to this. Like, and this is something that, you know, back in the day when I was working on FIFA, we'd have these big weekly meetings and they're called steering meetings. And you'd get in there, you know, I have lots of friends, you know, on FIFA and, but we get into those meetings and it would just immediately get tense because it's, you know, this is sort of about accountability. We'd go around the room. And it would be like, okay, so where's your thing at? Where's your at? Well, why is that? And it was just the way it came off that people would just get defensive, yeah. myself included. And I'd just be like, mm-hmm. and it, I hated those meetings. You know, the vibe in them and the, unfortunately the leaders that we had at the time, they just, they didn't know how not to create that situation. Um, but it was great for me because I learned from it and I went, I hate that. And I, everybody else in the room hates it. You know, we don't <laughs> like this, you know. So I've always said, uh, you know, in our meetings that we, I will never allow that kind of vibe, you know, because if we do this right, you know, the alternative is to collaborate, to listen to each other. We're not here to jump on anybody. We're here to support each other. Uh, we're here to find a way, you know, and it's not, you know, it's not going to be just one idea. It's going to be. Someone starts, plants a seed, and then it, you know, someone adds to it. And then before you know it, it becomes something that we all had a part of. Uh, and, and that was, and it's its best because of that, you know. Um, and this this thing that I read once, and uh, I didn't really, I didn't realize it um, at the time. But when I read this story, I went, wow, that's what's happening. That when you collaborate with other people in a successful way, your brain releases endorphins and you actually get a little high, you know, like you're like, Hey, yeah, you you get this really euphoric, positive feeling. And so that's the kind of meetings that we usually have. I mean, sometimes it doesn't always work out (laughs) because you're dealing with something really stressful. uh, And there's no way to come out of that meeting without feeling pressure, um, pressure on ourselves. Um, But, you know, most meetings, we finish going, okay, good. All right. Well, we got a plan here. We did it together. Uh, we believe in each other and we feel very positive about it. And it was a real collaboration. Nobody jumped on anybody. You know, it was a, a really positive experience and we feel good walking out. And, and that's just critically important to, you know, that being the typical outcome. Yeah. That's great. We like working together. You know, then we love working together. And if if for whatever reason, you know, we have had people that come into that and somehow it doesn't, we can't quite get it there. 
you know, and unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't work out. You know, you can't put 10 people together and expect them to all get along, you know, and and, and that's not anybody's right or wrong. It just sometimes doesn't work. Again, I like sports analogies. You see it on sports teams. You can put the best people together and they get beat by a team that's quite a bit weaker on paper, but they still, because they got along better because they gelled because they bonded for whatever reason. Um, so yeah, but once you get that, uh, and we have that at game loft, uh, Brisbane, and I'm really proud of that. Um, and it's, uh, it, yeah, it really makes coming to work a lot of fun. That's awesome. Look, I'll throw you one last little question then to wrap it up is, you know, what I guess excites you about the road ahead? Clearly, we're in the thick of a, a very weird time right now. But, um, you know, uh, when we look kind of on the, the slightly longer horizon, you know, what, what gives you a, a positive feeling about where we're heading? Well, I think, um, I mean, with this whole COVID thing, uh, it's, you know, on one side, COVID, it's terrible. You know, people have lost their lives. Um, people have lost their jobs. People have lost a lot of money. It's caused a lot of strife. Um, you know, to some degree, it's really out of everyone's control. It's mother nature. Uh, and we just have to sort of deal with it. And, and it's great to see everybody getting together to help each other to deal with it. Um, and I, I think it's also very dis- it's disruptive worldwide. I find that very interesting. You know, it's not like, oh, something bad that happened in a particular country. No, no, this affected everybody in the world. And it makes you stop and it makes you think and it makes you look at things from a different perspective. So it's a real disruptor. So I'm very interested and excited to see what comes out of that, you know. Um, And some of it might be quite subtle and some of it might take a few years. But I think that that's, you know, very interesting. And I'm always a, a pros and cons kind of guy. And I'm always looking at, okay, well, how can we, you know, make everything a pro as much as possible? You can't avoid all cons, but, you know, let's, let's find out what can we do to make it as positive as possible, right? Um, so I, I look at that. I think that, you know, we're going to be different in our studio because of this. Uh, you know, we'll probably try to accommodate a little bit more work from home than we were. Um, but we'll, we'll have to see how that goes. I don't want to make any promises yet because there's, you know, fin- financial implications and the way that, uh, you know, game developers are, their workstations are quite expensive and quite high performance. Mm. So we can't have like two of those for each employee yeah. and I can't have him, them carrying them in and out of work you know, <laughs> every other day. So we got to solve that problem. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm excited for just, you know, the the potential, the potential and the opportunity. I think the free to play thing um, is changing. I think I feel sort of a movement back to uh, making games for the sake of fun. Uh, and, you know, you look at things like Fortnite. What's awesome about that is that people got to play an amazing game for free. You know, you didn't have to buy all that stuff. You don't have to buy a battle pass. No one's forcing you to buy a battle pass. Yeah. Uh, and most people bought it and were like, yeah, but I'm happy. I'm getting good value for my money here. I'm happy. Um, so uh, I, I see, you know, new models like that is very exciting. Um, and I just, yeah, see people are trying to find a way. 
trying to find a way to make things work. Um, I know we're working on a game right now uh, that um, I'm, you know, I'm really excited about. I think it'll be really cool. Uh, we had a number of challenges over the last couple of years that have been addressed. So we're running uh, smoother, you know, than ever. And I guess that, uh, you know, sometimes like in the past, we've had to use um, some engines that probably we wouldn't have chosen. Uh, and on this new project, we've got to choose the engine. So that's really exciting and just lets people, um, we're using Unreal. And uh, it, it's really exciting for the team. And it just, you know, it's everything operates like a you know, little bit more like a well-oiled machine. You know, there's not as much friction day to day when you get to do that. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, I, I do think, too, like us scaling back, like it has been a really tough couple of years for Gameloft Brisbane because, you know, we were trying to force that growth uh, and it just wasn't happening. And that caused a lot of friction. You know, we still had to try and develop two games at the same time with only one and a half teams or even one team. And that was very stressful for everyone involved. Um, and like I said, to go through the layoffs back in uh, November, that was uh, that's so difficult. Um, so, yeah, this is uh, so far uh, and, and the way it looks for the rest of the year. Um, I'm not going to say it's going to be easy, but, you know, everything is lined up. Um, success should be with a little bit less, um, a little less challenges, a little less friction um, and frustration, I guess. So I'm really, I'm really pumped about that because it's always more fun when you can, you know, you put all this effort into something and most of it, it, it gets uh, realized or most of it becomes something. You go, oh, okay, great. Where, you know, it's like riding, riding your bike into the wind. It's much more fun when the wind's behind you and you're going, yeah, this is great, than riding into it and going half the speed. Yeah. You know, even for the greatest cyclists, it's, that's still not quite as satisfying. This has been High Resolution. It's part of the Biteside Podcast Network. You can get in touch via at Biteside on Twitter or reach out to me at Seamus. And thanks to Igea again for helping put together these developer interviews. It's been a huge help. We'll catch you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.